0: Okay, everybody, so I am going to just pretty much launch into this because we don't have a lot of time, and um, what I guess, just to frame things very, very quickly, um, I'm going to be assuming that you're talking um, at at a close level with your teachers in working through um, Hagseed and the Tempest, so what I see the purpose of my lecture today being is, I suppose, a kind of a, it's 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 putting to you those kinds of so what questions. Why does this matter? What is this text doing? What is Hagseid doing with the Tempest? Why does that matter? And kind of giving you that kind of broad overview to try to make sense of some of those finer points about the texts. So let's start with this concept of conversation that's part of this particular um, module for the HSC, so Texts and Conversations. So and have a bit of a think, first of all, about the nature of the conversation between hagseed and the tempest, or the conversation that hagseed is having with the tempest. So first first of all, Um, It's very much a sustained conversation, by which I mean it goes across the entire length of the text. It isn't something that sort of drops in and out or is passing, um, you know, passing references. It's a sustained engagement through the entire length of the text that takes a couple of different forms that I'll talk about today. It's very much a deliberate conversation. This text, um, some of you may already be aware of this, but this is a commissioned text by which I mean Hogarth, the publisher Hogarth, put together a Shakespeare series that was uh, where they invited contemporary novelists to basically do their own um, updated reworkings of Shakespeare plays. And this was, I think, the fourth novel in that series. Doesn't seem to be ongoing, the series, but anyway, um, Atwood's uh, novel is part of that series. And so it's a very deliberate engagement. Uh, an important thing I'm going to talk about today it's a cross medium conversation. Okay, so this is a novel in conversation with a play, and that matters because they're quite different in what they aim to do and the techniques that they use. So um, it's a cross-medium conversation. It's a modernising conversation. I've already begun to flag that. I'll have a talk about the forms of modernisation that we see in the text. Um, Again, just kind of quite broad brush for you to then take into your conversations and your revisions toward the HSC. So it's what we call a reflexive conversation. Um, again, I'll elaborate on that, but what that means is that it's a conversation that is very self-aware and it openly marks itself in conversation with that text. And so it's not something that sort of happens by way of parallel or, again, references along the way. It's a very reflexive, open conversation that... that. Um, you know, is explicit in the way it's engaging. Okay, the last um, form of conversation that's ha- that's being had in this text is what we call a pedagogic conversation. Now, that just means a teaching conversation. So um, the kinds of conversations that you have in classrooms are pedagogic. So they're ones where somebody is trying to impart some sort of knowledge or as a group together, that's happening. And so the text stages... A pedagogic exchange, by which I just mean it shows us teaching, but the text itself also engages in a sort of a teaching relationship with the audience, with the readership. Um, And that's reviewers have been quite mixed about how they feel about that. Some people think that's a real strength of the novel, some people think it makes it a bit preachy. So um, I'll leave that up to you to see what you think, but that's, you know, it has um, divided people a little bit, that pedagogic element. So let me go to my next slide. Okay, so I mentioned that this is um, a cross-medium conversation. So how does that change in medium affect the conversation? Okay, that's one question that we need to ask of this text. So um, in the case of a conventional narrative and a conventional novel, and this novel is relatively conventional in the sense that it just pursues its narrative Um, more or less straight across time rather than engaging in very extensive, say, um, flashbacks, et cetera. So it's conventionally narrative and, on the whole, um, plays in a conventional form tend to then pursue a narrative arc that kind of goes in a straight line. And so uh, in this particular, with these particular two texts, we do tend to see that. Now, that's not to say that we don't have characters who narrate backstory. So for instance, Prospero gives us quite a lot of backstory um, in a couple of important speeches throughout The Tempest, and we do see a little bit of backstory given, for instance, to the criminal characters, that the inmates in um, in hagseed but on the whole it moves in a forward motion, so both texts do that. But they do these things differently. So, first of all, when we think about a play like The Tempest, um, it's driven by what we call dramaturgical considerations. Now... All I mean by that is um, that it's driven not just by the narrative but how the narrative is plotted and the kinds of dramatic demands that come with that, okay? So, for instance, if I can give you uh, an example, um, the marriage mask in the play, okay? So, sorry, I'll just get, um, I just had to move a text box. Um, So the marriage mask in the play, so this is Act 4, Scene 1, we have this very long musical mask, it's actually not that important to the narrative as such, okay? The marriage could take place without it, um, but the blessing that comes from the goddesses is turned into a spectacle, okay? And Shakespeare as a playwright was and as an actor was highly sensitised to the possibility for spectacle and those kinds of dramatic moments in the text. So it's not a plot point, it's a drama point, right? So um, it's quite different from what a, a novel might not necessarily um, be interested in those questions of spectacle. The other thing about plays is that they're essentially, very obvious point I'm making, but it bears repeating, they are essentially performative, okay? So all I mean by that is that the plots, the themes, and of course the characterization are conveyed through two principal means, through speech, and through action, okay? This is how we learn about characters, generally through what we might call exterior expression of character, okay. so through what they say and through what they do. Now, again, that's not to say we don't ever have characters speaking about what's going on inside them, but they tend to do it in this kind of interactive, performative way. And so that's how we see the text unfold. Novels work quite differently, and they use different techniques to convey the same information or or similar information between these two texts. So first of all, I mentioned before, they're both narrative. But Hagseed as a novel is driven much more by the way the narrative unfolds, say, for instance, for um, Felix's character, okay? And it doesn't necessarily um, give us drama and spectacle. It reflects quite a lot on drama and spectacle and thinking because it's trying to convey to us a performance, right? So it needs to convey to us how spectacle worked within the drama. But essentially it's a novel and it uses its narrative plot points okay to go across its across its story the other really important thing and i think this is probably more important distinction between the two things is that novels are particularly this novel quite interiorized by that i mean that again our plots themes and characterization are conveyed to us as readers through what's called third person focalization by that i just mean that Um, The novel is conveyed through third person, but we're always seeing it through the eyes of Felix. So what we get to see in the story is conveyed through him. Now, that's not to say that we always accept his perspective on things. You know, we realise, particularly in the early parts of *Hagseed*, that the story he's telling himself about what's happened to him isn't the whole story, that he has in some ways lost sight of um, his responsibilities and he's been wrapped up in his artistic vision. So um, he's not an entirely reliable narrator, but nevertheless, he's the one who controls our perspective. So, And it's quite different because when you see a play, you can have a character with a spotlight on them, but you don't have to look at them. You can choose to look at a different part of the stage. But when it comes to um, a novel like this, we're essentially um, having the action conveyed to us through this vocalization. Um, So that's a really important distinction and paying attention to how you see um, Atwood doing this and how it affects um, our perspective on the different characters. We often don't learn very much about other characters. I think it's one of the things, again, a bit of a critique of this novel has been that we don't really learn about the other characters. We tend to only learn about what um, Felix is interested in about them. So they remain somewhat shadowy at times. So It's just a thing to think about. Okay. So... Um, So the psychological interiority of the text, that just means, again, what's going on inside somebody's head, (laughs) is developed through Felix's frame narrative. So we get that extra dimension of finding out Felix's, um, you know, psychological trauma, essentially, the way he's responding to the trauma of his daughter's death. Um, And we get that through actually knowing um, what's going on in his head without him speaking. Okay, so that's again quite distinct from what a play does. So, just keeping an eye on the time, I should move on. Okay, let me find my next slide. Okay, so how does this thing I mentioned before called reflexivity work? Okay, so it goes beyond the idea of a parallel between the texts. Okay, so definitely this text. has, gives us all sorts of narrative parallels between Prospero and um, Felix. But the text goes beyond that into actually reflecting explicitly on the nature of art and the nature of adaptation. Okay, so those of you who've studied The Tempest so far will have come across the term meta theatre or hearing it described as metatheatrical, meaning that it's a play that reflects on the nature of drama okay, in the nature of theatre, particularly through the metaphor of Prospero being a magician, okay, so that Prospero as a magician is a kind of a parallel or a proxy for the playwright, um, and so there's that kind of reflection on the nature of creativity and the kind of control that the creator has over their creation, okay, so that's part of its Meta theatre. And in particular, in that final speech of um, Prospero's at the very, very end of the play, um, when he talks about breaking his staff, etc., there's a kind of a moment where he directly addresses the audience and hands the power to them to set him free, basically to imaginatively um, end the play for him. So there's a kind of really interesting meditation on creativity at the end of the play. So Hagseed takes this and then takes it further right because basically it's a meta fictional novel that is a novel that's reflecting on the making of fiction that's meditating on a meta a meta theatrical play okay so we've got all of this double meta going on in the text it's it's reflecting on what it means to do a play in a play about a play that's reflecting. what what it is to do a play. So we've got these kinds of layers of creativity. So we've got, and we've got all of these um, creative um, figures like Felix, Prospero, um, et cetera, Shakespeare, Atwood. They're all sort of in there as creative forces um, that we have to kind of disentangle from each other if we can. So so basically uh, we have within the text, we see characters, attempting to adapt a play but we also see them reflecting there's uh, quite a lot of reflection in the text on um the mechanics of drama okay so say for instance when there are difficult scenes like how do we show the the um the goddesses in the mask scene oh we'll use barbie dolls or what have you there's this kind of reflection on how to do difficult scenes and how they can be rendered. And so we see that that kind of um, meditation and reflection on um, theatrical process, on the mechanics and the logistics of theatre. And so we see the novel narrating that. We hear about Shakespeare's afterlife, so at various points, because Felix knows a lot about the play. He knows that, say, for instance, in the 18th century, it was performed as a musical. So we have this character who can actually tell us quite a lot about Shakespeare's legacy. And then, of course, the text reflects extensively and openly on the relevance of Shakespeare through the inmates, okay? So when the inmates are asked to do their various exercises, they then have to reflect on... um, what Shakespeare means to them, how they can see the, the, the characters in themselves, what they think the characters' motivations are, etc. So we get this kind of um, almost like a masterclass in um, reflexive metafiction happening in the text. And so we kind of join with those characters in the novel in reflecting on the play. So it's kind of inviting us into, into its reflexive sort of um, analysis so yeah just that idea of reflexivity is just keep in mind the idea that it's always very very self-aware okay there's a very self-aware reflection going on and one of the mechanisms that the novel uses to allow this to happen and I've already begun to talk about this is the fact that it's a pedagogical novel okay it's a novel um, that has at its core a classroom Okay, so people workshopping a play and having to think about that play. And so basically, Atwood uses that particular um, element of setting to allow all of this to take place. Okay, so, and I'll come back to that point a little bit later, but the reflexive element is built into the novel through its use of setting. Okay, so. Okay so let's have a think about what we see Hagseid retaining from the tempest okay so first of all its central narrative plotted twice right in the frame narrative that just the frame narrative by that i just mean um Felix's story okay his story of being dethroned from the um theatre company and then regaining his um his directorship at the end of the novel sorry spoiler alert if you haven't got there <laughs> but you should know if you've read the tempers what's going to happen okay so we get the prison play and then we get the frame narrative so we get the tempers kind of twice over as it were in the novel um it keeps the characters just the technical term for that is the dramatis personae okay that just means the characters in the play they're kept um more or less um exactly um, across the, the the novel and the play and the novel. Okay, the core themes are retained. So, again, something you'll talk about extensively in class I could just touch on today is the themes of colonialism and sound governance. By that I mean good government, good ruling, um, what makes for, for um, you know, authoritarian rule, what makes for democratic rule, um, what, you know, the way in which colonialism um, deprives the... Um, inhabitants, the kind of Indigenous inhabitants of a space from um, self-governance and sovereignty, right? So the play is dealing with those themes. And, of course, when Shakespeare wrote the play, um, England was just embarking on its... um, Colonial period in a serious way. It had been colonising Ireland for several hundred years, but it was now entering across uh, into the Atlantic, uh, the Caribbean, etc. And interestingly, the character who's cast as Caliban, people might have noted, is actually half Irish and half Black. And so there's a little bit, this is Margaret Atwood being kind of clever in showing us that she's aware in contemporary Canada as a post colonial place, a place that has been colonised by the British and the French and is kind of examining that legacy, she's aware of where it started and she uses that character to mark that awareness. And so the the novels are in 21st century Canada, looking back on that longer history of colonisation. And, again, some of the characters are quite open about that Red Coyote and others talk openly about colonisation. And, again, that's quite reflexive in the way um, The Tempest doesn't talk about it, it just performs it. So the other thing that's really important is creativity and the power of imagination, and I've already begun to talk about that. That's less of a historical and political theme and more of a kind of, again, reflexive, universal theme and it allows for all of these really interesting parallels to go about. So we've got sort of Margaret Atwood writing Felix who's writing, who's reflecting on Shakespeare's writing of Prospero. So we've got these kind of multiple layers of considering and performing creativity in the text, okay, and and imagination. So those things are kept. Okay, what gets modernised? First of all, I mentioned the prison setting. Uh, now, th- this does a number of interesting things. Okay, so first of all, by having these um, inmates, the inmates as the kind of main interpreters, what? Um, Atwood's able to do, it's interesting because it modernises the text but it also reproduces certain things that are quite sort of um, Jacobean or Elizabethan, you know, basically renaissance about Shakespeare's text. So first of all, it creates an audience for the play who echo the kinds of popular audiences who would have seen Shakespeare's plays. So um, it's it, it, you know, is able to, to suggest that his plays are for the people by putting it into this prison environment. Okay, it gives us multicultural perspectives. That's something that's definitely quite modern about about, um, Atwood's uptake of the Tempest. Um, Now, interestingly, by having it in this prison classroom, it gives us a more democratic um, power dynamic. So it's an interesting thing because, um, for instance, if I can give you an example, Felix's relationship to um, the the character who is his Ariel, okay, eight hands. Um, In in The Tempest, actually, Prospero has quite a despotic relationship to Ariel, and he threatens Ariel across the play with the sense that he um, freed Ariel and Ariel needs to continue this service to him until Prospero is ready to free him. Um, We're not given that despotic relationship Uh, Between Felix and Eight Hands in the novel. Um, Felix ultimately does help Eight Hands by giving him, assisting in him getting early parole, but it's not presented as despotic. So certainly Atwood wants to move that on, even though um, Felix says, well, theatre isn't a democracy. Um, Ultimately, it is quite a democratic environment in the prison. Okay, so by having the play in the prison, it also means Shakespeare is divested. That means the the text gets rid of his elite cultural legacy. We associate Shakespeare these days with elite culture um, again by modernising the play in the way that Atwood does. She also restores to it this early non-elite status that Shakespeare had. It was popular theatre in his time. So it also reinstates the improvisational, sorry i misspelt that, uh, mistyped it, nature of um, Shakespearean theatre, the fact that lots of Shakespeare's um, actors contributed to the the script, something people don't always realise, that these things we call Shakespeare plays are the product of um, also the input of the actors who performed the plays, you know, some of whom were not literate, right? So she's able to reproduce that original um, setting through the modernised setting. And an interesting thing that the play does, as well, the, the novel does as well, is that it basically—and um, I think this could even be my last point—and um, then I can take a couple of questions if there's time. Just checking my clock. Um, so one interesting thing that happens here is that the, the essentially the characters within, the, the, the inmates within the play within um, *Hag Seed* actually essentially strip the play of Shakespearean language and we've got this kind of interesting question that the novel puts to us is what do we think Shakespeare is? Is Shakespeare his plots? Are Shakespeare plays their plots? When we think of Shakespeare we often think of his extraordinary language and that's the thing that often students find a little bit intimidating about Shakespeare but also once you get to know Shakespeare it's one of the great joys of his plays. Um, So what does it mean to have a Shakespeare play that doesn't have Shakespearean language? Now, we know that the characters throughout Hagseed Swear are only allowed to use Shakespearean curses, but when they actually do the play, they've essentially um, taken inspiration from rap and from contemporary um, art forms and and poetry forms um, and are not using Shakespearean language. And so um, in thinking about this question of contemporary relevance to Shakespeare, what does it mean to have a Shakespearean play that is not in Shakespearean English? Is it still a Shakespeare play? Um, and so has the adaptation um, restored the original text? Has it lost the original text? What's left? What's been lost, et cetera? So it's kind of putting that question to us about what we think Shakespeare is. So, look, I think i stop there. Thank you for your attention everybody um, and good luck for the rest of the day. I'll be back to talk about um, Kenneth Lesser later on. Okay, bye.